This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. past the hour of nine o'clock not two minutes past the hour of eight o'clock you're on uh, th- you're on three triple r this is radio marinara i'm anthony boxshaw oh rex hunter good morning good, rex good to be here so uh so late in the day <laughs> yes it is now if you have woken up and you've just thought wow what huh <laughs> uh, yeah the daylight saving thing happened again like it does every year yeah so well, that's the end of the curtains Nth. I know they'll fade. <laughs> they'll yeah, fade. they'll fade the extra hour. <laughs> <laughs> and as Tim just said, <laughs> I was always complaining about losing an hour. Okay, they, they steal our hour. Right? It's a tax. They steal it. It's unfair. I know. And, and as Tim pointed out, exactly as you, as you say, that we, we get a public holiday. And then they can't give us the whole public holiday. They take back an hour, <laughs> yes. which I think is lovely. I just love that bit of conspiracy theory there by it's, young Tim. It's Tim's all thought. about giving and taking. <laughs> <laughs> You're on Radio Marinara. We need to thank young Timothy. Ah, oh, just fantastic yet again. Yes, the superlatives, and, a star. and Justin Bernasconi. Yes, fantastic. That guy can play guitar. He, he knows. He knows his way around the guitar. He does. <laughs> Better <great>. than me. <laughs> Well, if it's better than me, that wouldn't be saying much. <laughs> no. But, um, yeah, very impressive. Yes. Oh, I was listening on the way in. Yes, very impressive. 
Anyway, here we are on Radio Marinara. Um, we're on the post Kent Tigers celebration morning. <laughs> <laughs> he's out there singing the club song. <laughs> it's the, he's in his fourth round. He's got his footy shorts on. He's, he's got, got his Richmond jumper. Yeah, it smells of liniment <laughs> out there. They're giving him liniment? a massage. Tim's is that him a mess or rum? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, there's one very happy uh, man in the phone room this morning, young Kent out there for his tigers. That was a good win, wasn't it, Rex? Oh, it was amazing. Yes, yes. I could, my, I could hear my wife screaming and yelling. Mm. She's a tiger supporter. No, she's she, she's, she's a Carlton, a supporter. Carlton supporter. <laughs> but she always goes for the underdog. They were everybody's. Um, Kind of, if you, if you didn't back for Adelaide, you were going for the tie. Oh, of course, of course. You, everyone has a soft spot for the underdogs like the doggies last year and uh, Richmond this year. I, I kind of, you know, that, that'll do though. If it's all right, <laughs> Kent, that'll do. We don't need any more. Um, <laughs> don't, don't need some kind of Tiger dynasty. <laughs> I remember the, the late 80s and early, uh, the late 70s and early 80s and oh, they yes. were just feral. They were all over the place. <laughs> Kevin Bartle was on TV all the time. <laughs> yeah. Not handballing to anybody, you know. <laughs> <coughs> oh, that is nice to break that hoodoo for them, though. It was yes. fantastic and what a win. Maybe North Melbourne can come up again. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, who's next? I mean, I, you know, to be honest, I wouldn't mind if Melbourne got a go. <laughs> What's it been? Like 1950, whatever. <laughs> <Something> <laughs> ridiculous. Anyway, it's probably about all the footy. Yes. That we'll talk well, about. That's about all I know about football anyway. You've <laughs> <laughs> exhausted me. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Bouncing back from a shocking cold. Um, oh, Ken's broken down the song again. Um, <coughs> the, um, that's his fifth rendition of the Tiger theme song this morning. Hey, we've got a, um, we are going to talk about marine coastal things, aren't we? Oh, I hope so. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Disappointing otherwise. We've got... Um, Got a whole bunch of different news. Oh yes, we'll, we'll make it up, up as we go along. Yeah, no, and some of it's um, not made up even. <laughs> no. um, and I, I got the, I, I lined up this little piece about um, the um, tsunami mega drift. Oh right, I'm going to talk about this after this the next track. But anyway, and then I was sitting there on Friday. I think it's Friday, late evening. And they're PM. There they are doing the same piece. And I thought, ah, there we go. We've all read the same articles. <laughs> anyway, and then. Um, You've been looking at different uh, shipwrecks around the place, We're accessible ones? Yes, yes. There's a couple down back of Williamstown, so I'll go into that later. But, uh, yeah, some very, very interesting, unique sites not far from Melbourne. So yeah. No excuse for not diving a shipwreck. There we go. Good. All right. Well, that's coming about 9.30. And then after that, we're going to talk about Blue Carbon. Not blue carbon is? Is that was that a movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that actually it's a song. She wore blue carbon. Anyway, no different. Sorry, that's blue velvet. No. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about blue carbon and something you're not going to believe this, but someone has calculated the blue carbon footprint or the carbon footprint, I should say, of a surf and turf dinner. A surf and turf. And it well, that's going back to the 70s. And it may surprise you. Oh, it will be surprised. Actually, it surprised the hell out of me. Anyway, we'll come back. We're going to talk about blue carbon and particularly coastal. Blue carbon, obviously, carbon sequestered in coastal ecosystems. Right. And so um, there's, a, there's a whole lot, as we've talked about on the show, Pete McCready down, down the road here, he's been doing a lot of work. At it. Anyway, there's a, whole, there's a bunch of new papers around um, how you calculate blue carbon because, of course, if you're tracking it, how you count it is really important. But anyway, we're going to talk about the weather. I think um, the sun is shining in Richmond. 
<laughs> and <laughs> his bright, bright spots are like the rest of the place. Um, well, I'm, it's very poor lighting here, Ant, and uh, we might have to pay <laughs> pay our electricity bill so I can read the paper. But actually, everyone's paid up, haven't they? <laughs> after the radiothon, so should should be able to should be able to pay off the bill. But for the probably uh, for, for day, it's uh, between nine degrees and, and nineteen uh, light winds, and for the rest of the week up to about Wednesday, maybe Thursday, uh-huh. extremely light winds. So um, extremely light winds, very Does that not- mean no wind. <laughs> Did they actually say extremely? No, I'm, oh, okay. I'm putting extremely light, light oh, winds. That's, that was a nautical um, interpretation. Yeah, nautical, was it? Yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah t- if you're feeling sick or look like feeling sick, take a day off, put the boat in water and go out for a dive. <laughs> well, sorry, but don't say I said that. Where's the, what's the tides? Uh, the tides, oh, goodness, where are they? <laughs> oh, you know, I don't need, normally need glasses, but boy, I'm happy. He's, uh, uh, for those that don't know, Rex is standing there and he's, he's put the paper on the other side of the room <laughs> and he's leaning. Anyone of a certain age will know that. <laughs> if uh, somebody, let's, if let's somebody can phone the in the tides for me. <laughs> But there's going to be tides today. In the there heads. are tides. Yep, yep. So there you, are tides. If you're any diver or surfer, you'll know know of them. So I'm just <laughs> wasting my time. <laughs> I'm creating blue carbon just by doing yeah. a bit. <laughs> All right. So there we go. You've got it. You've had it. Um, uh, you know, early on marinara. There, yeah. it's the, the scoop of the morning. There are tides. There are tides. There are tides. <laughs> there'll be tides at the heads, believe it or not. Yeah, and there'll be tides, I reckon, in other parts of the bay. Yeah, possibly. And they're probably going to be at slightly different set, different times. There's every like chance they'll be of offset, that happening. won't they? <laughs> yes. So yes. if at the heads it'll be one time and then up at Willie it'll be about, what, three hours later? About that. Yeah, or three hours earlier. So usually high tide at Williamstown is roughly slack water at the heads, more or less. Yeah, roughly. Yeah, so if you can work out one of those, <laughs> then you'll know which the other is. So here we go. If we have a high and low tide at the same time, we're in trouble. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Anyway, it's um, going to be 19 today. Yes. And 23 later in the week. Yes. Which well, I don't believe. Tuesday, yes. Uh, it is October, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, no, it should be warming up by now. Um, Wednesday's 22, um, Thursday's 23, uh, Friday's 20. Nice and warm. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Uh, you're on Radio Marinara. Now, you've been looking, they've been finding new shipwrecks off the coast of Greece. Well, yes, Bit yes. Of news. There's an archaeological group in, in Greece. Um, a local spear fisherman from the Fawning Islands came to see one of the heads of the departments there and said, I've just found this amazing, these amazing sites. I'm spear fishing in, you know, what, 30, uh, 10, 15 metres of water. Yeah. And coming across um, piles of amphora and all sorts of stuff, he said you should come out, should come out and have a look. Seriously, so just li- literally off an island, just yeah, you know, in spearfishing depth, yeah. he's finding amphora, which would suggest like ancient, very ancient. kind. You know, they, yeah. that's what they used to move everything across the Mediterranean in those little pots. Those yeah, they were, they were the uh, like the forty-four gallon drum. And it's just lying there. It's I mean, like, surely someone's found it before. You would imagine so. Being it's not so, that big ocean there, man. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> No, it's only tiny. But uh, you would imagine by, you know, how popular scuba diving yeah. and spearfishing is that somebody would have found them and exploited them because that certainly happened certain mm, in the late mm. ni- 1940s through 50s, 60s, 70s. People would find something like that and they'd just be destroyed. So good on him. So he, so he went to the authorities. He went to the authorities. They arranged an expedition. Um, first was in 2015. I think they found 20, 20-odd shipwrecks. 20? 20. 20 Range of between sixth century BC to nineteenth century no. raiders, so full of 
really, really important uh, archaeological material. Tells the history of civilization. Yeah. And uh, and all, it's all just sitting there. It's all just sitting there. And then they went back again, again, and found another 20-odd shipwrecks. Oh, no. I think they found eight in one day. <laughs> that must be that. The wreck hunter's kind of wild dream. Well, I've, I've done two. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. So I imagine there'd be lots of high-fiving going on. <laughs> Underwater. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So it's absolutely amazing. Fantastic. Uh, good good on so it. Was it was, uh, I don't know whether you know too much about the area, but was it um, because it was a dangerous passage and ships get wrecked there a lot or was it like a gra- ship graveyard? Or, well, it was like, a group of islands, so I imagine they would have been sheltering from storms. Yeah, um, right. The wind comes up, obviously... The engines were very primitive in those 2,000 years ago. <laughs> yeah. As in rowing <laughs> yes. or sail. Sail, yeah. that's it. And they, they probably couldn't sail, sail very close to the wind like modern-day yachts are able to. They sail very close to the wind. Yeah, yeah. They were just blown ashore and sank. So. And, and, like, it would have been an obvious spot, but no-one's looked there. No-one's, yeah, it's right under their noses. So who, who in that circumstance, like, kind of owns the stuff? With the Greek government now because they're the ones yeah, that Yeah, they'd, they'd be the owners, custodians of, the, of yeah. the sites and have to protect them, you know, through laws and, and that type of thing. Because there are, like, other people who, you know, what's his name from Microsoft who loans his, his boat oh, Paul out. Paul Allen. Yeah. So he loans his boat out. He's, he's got, a, like, a 100, 100 metre play thing. That, As you do. That he's just uh, being philanthropic. He lets uh, people... Searches for shipwrecks all around the world, and they recently found the USS Indianapolis off um, off the Philippines. And Good this man. this is interesting. Well, mm. one because it, it carried parts of the little boy to Tinian Island, which wow. is south of Japan, and obviously we know what the consequences of that was. Yeah, was that Nagasaki or or uh, Hiroshima? Uh, I think it was I Hiroshima. I remember which one dropped on which one, but it was one of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, I think it was a, Hiroshima. It yeah. wasn't a good result, whichever no, way it was. No, no. Um, it was returning from Tinian Island after dropping bits and pieces off. Got torpedoed by a Japanese submarine and sank, and there was 1,196 1, people, and they end up losing... Uh, well, it was 317 survivors. And the thing was... It wasn't reported missing for about four days, which Wh- is why because ex- someone's expecting you know a committee <laughs> uh, how uh, government operations <laughs> run. <laughs> well, they were just but waiting for a just phone wait. call. It didn't turn up. Yeah, they were waiting for a phone <laughs> call. Oh, they must have gone sightseeing. Said, yeah, it's been four days. We, oh, we haven't heard from. It's unusual. But, you know, <laughs> it is war, I suppose. Yeah. You know, you can go missing. So there was um, really they seriously. Uh, there's quite uh, quite a few Goodness survived, me. but. Yeah. In the end, there was people floating around the water. There were sharks. For days. They were, they were, the people in the boats, they were drinking salt water because they had oh, no fresh water. Yeah, yeah. I remember, That's messy. I remember reading one of the stories where the, I think it was an ensign or something, said, I'm just going down below, stepped <gasps> off the side of the boat because he'd so... The salt water just... Delusional yeah, yeah. Yeah, with drinking salt water. Ah, that, that's no, that's a bad look, salt water. We're not built to... to no, filter, no. The salts of salt water, are we? Hey, I've been, I'm going to talk about a different kind of debris, um, uh, d- you know, as opposed to large ships on the bottom of the ocean. Sorry, but how deep was that one before we go on, the Indianapolis? Uh, I, I think it's um, about 18,000 yeah. feet or something. Yeah. It's pretty deep. Yeah, pretty, wow. Because... Off the Philippines. I love that. I love that the Microsoft guy, yeah. just, he's got like a little tinny that he loans <laughs> out. Yeah, and it just, <clears throat> it's, they've also found a couple others in between as well and 
It just, yeah. It's remarkable. I'd love to get a gig aboard. <laughs> yeah, or bring him to you, Bass, Bass Strait. Perhaps yeah. you could write to him. Yeah, yeah. Just go, oh, dear, um, dear Paul. Dear Paul. We do a little show here in Melbourne. <laughs> We'd love to go hunting for <laughs> shipwrecks in Bass Strait. <laughs> We're not sure that your boat is small enough to fit in our bay. But <laughs> anyway, yeah. hey, I, I was looking at this thing. It, just, it came out in Science uh, a couple of days ago. And then there's a really interesting piece by Stephen Chown in, um, in the conversation highlighting it. And it's about this um, phenomenon that, that has been coined tsunami mega rafting. <laughs> Yeah. Sounds like a new sport. <laughs> uh, it could be. But what it is is, you know, the way um, uh, organisms spread all around the ocean by basically drifting. You yes. know, so you could have a palm tree that falls into, you know, the ocean on some island on one side of the Pacific and a barnacle attaches to it and then, the you know, floats across the other side yeah. of the Pacific. The barnacle, you know, has babies along the way and the babies, the babies, the babies, whatever. they And there they are. They're in, they're in the US and they've come from the you know, the other side of the Pacific. Well, that that kind of natural spread of, you know, what we think of as invasive species, you know, places, you know, species that are coming from one spot and going to another, that's been going on for, for yeah, ever. Forever. Yeah, that's the way species move around. Good old God and land. All that stuff. Yeah, well, that's a big version of it, you yeah. know, rafting on a continent. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, after the tsunami in Japan in 2011... There was a bunch of uh, researchers looking at what was washing up on the west coast of the US. And so what happened, so, you know, because the way the ocean circulates, what happened was, was, you know, you'll often get things that come from that, you know, the Japanese side of the Pacific over the American side of the Pacific, um, you know, by a drift. And what was happening is there were enormous amounts of new species turning up about... um, 300 different species that arrived on the coast of California. So there were bryzoans, there were barnacles, there were mussels, there were shrimp, there were all kinds of different types. And because these guys were out doing surveys looking for invasive species, they all of a sudden saw this pulse of new invasive species So established already? Yes, or or, um, turned up on beaches and starting to get a a beachhead. Right, (laughs) (laughs) boom, boom. Um, You know, um, and so... What, so they tracked it back and they're going, what is it? And then, all of, and then, of course, they were finding debris and they were finding coastal debris from Japan. So coastal infrastructure, so buoys that have been moored, you know, boats yeah. that have been moored in, in marinas, um, bits of piers, you know, stuff that have broken off in the tsunami. Yeah, well, not, not just thong. that. No, but actual infrastructure, yeah, like things that are supposed to be fixed. Yes. But because a tsunami obviously hits the coast, it breaks everything up. And then they, those things were floating off. And so they'd been sitting in the water in Japan in the, you know, whatever, just at the local pier. So if you go down to the pier at Williamstown, have a look, mm-hmm. it's all caked, covered with stuff. Yeah. Bits of those piers were breaking off, floating to the other side of the ocean and depositing, in this case, about 300 new species to California and Washington State and Oregon. Isn't that remarkable? Well, this this must have been going on for thousands of years previously, isn't it? It has, but this, the difference was after the tsunami, because of the scale of essentially plastic infrastructure, which then was not breaking down and it was covered in stuff, it was rafting across the ocean at a greater rate. Right. right. So they'd never seen in that, like, they look back through the records and they've never seen a pulse like this. So you, you're right. I mean, all the trees in the old tsunami, you know, a tsunami would hit, thousand years ago yeah. and a tree had fallen down and, but it would have to have been a tree that was sitting in the ocean that was covered in yeah. fouling organisms and because we have so much coastal infrastructure now 
yes. that makes it different. So interesting, tsunami-driven mega rafting. Sounds like a hobby. <laughs> it is. But it's also, sorry to jump in there, yeah, but no. there was uh, years and years ago, wasn't there a container full of yellow ducks? Oh, yeah, no, they're still going, the ducks. And they're finding them all around oh, the world. Yeah, yeah, they, they've been tracking those ducks for years. Yes. We covered those ducks a few years back and, um, yeah, they're turning up all over the place. And, in fact, they've been using those ducks to prove oceanographic models. Yeah. So they'll be Collect going... data. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They'll be, oh, there's a new data point. <laughs> the ducks turned up. Um, <clears throat> but this one is really interesting because it raises a question. So there's a, there are biosecurity surveillance programs, obviously, for, for ballast water exchange yes. and those kinds of things out of vessels and hull cleaning and all those kinds of things. The Navy, all they, they all do this to make sure that they there's no introduction of new species. And it, it kind of... It, it, creates a conundrum when you have yes. an event like that. How do you actually... C- control it. Yeah, control for... It's like, like yeah. the entire coastline. Is a, was getting, could be affected. Yeah, yeah. It's really yes. interesting. Anyway, un- a bit unexpected, um, but I suppose if you think it through, the natural process is just enormously sped up again by our kind of coastal infrastructure. Yeah, is it, so does it work in reverse? Is there a... a I suppose there wouldn't be a current from... Well, North there America. is, but there wasn't the same amount of yes. stuff um, covered in... Uh, fouling organisms that were going back the other way. Yes. But you thankfully didn't. didn't have a tsunami. Hey, now, tell me, have you managed to decode the tides? <laughs> <laughs> through <laughs> through amazing, some amazing skill, I've actually managed to read the paper and find the tide times. So you want to hurry up to catch the 6.14am uh, high tide. Uh, oh, hang on, I think we've missed that. Uh, <laughs> so it lows at 1.38 at point... This is at the heads. Uh, the next high is at 8.02pm. Uh, 8.02? Might be a night dive there if you're crazy enough. <laughs> and the low tide's at 1.56am. Oh. So the tides, there you have it. There we go. We found them. We found, <laughs> it was a job. Very high tide at Williamstown yesterday, I can tell you. Was it really? I took the dogs for a walk and there, there it was. It was right up... Um, just underneath huh. Parsons Marina. What's um, the moon doing at the moment? I don't know. So, conversely, there should be a very low tide as well. Yeah, there should be too. Anyway, you're on Radio Marino. We're going to talk shipwrecks. We're going to talk accessible shipwrecks around the bay because people often say, oh, you need to have, you know, multi-million dollar hundred foot ships owned by the <laughs> bloke that started Microsoft, you know, um, to be able to access your shipwrecks or those big diving bells that go down five kilometres. But it turns out you can actually just step off the shore. You can just go down to Williamstown if you want, want to, Anth. Yeah. Uh, it's no need to even buy a scuba tank or borrow a scuba tank um, because we can go back at Williamstown. There's oh, probably half a dozen shipwrecks or so that we've found over the years. Um, one, of the, one of the really, really nifty one and one of the last iron shipwrecks probably even in Australia and um, certainly Victoria was a, a vessel called the Albert William. So that's just near, if we know where Williamstown is. It's, yeah. it's just near Melbourne, look across to Melbourne. Uh, we know where the football ground is at yeah. Williamstown. Yeah, the, the Willy Footy Ground, yeah. Willy Footy Ground, if just near there, and off a, off the, um, off a little um, semicircular rock pool, just out in front of that, uh, you can find the Albert William. That was, a, as I said, it was an iron vessel built in 1863 in the UK. Um, it... It sailed around the world for a number of years before making its way to Australia. Now, this is quite sort of 
played a significant part in the rescue of survivors from a vessel called the Dandenong, which is Steve. The Dandenong? The is Dandenong. that where the name it came from, a vessel, or was it named after? Which came first, the uh, town or the... You got me now. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 sorry, no, no, just a little, you know. Side I, thought. I meant that Dandenong Rangers would have, would, would have been... Yeah, probably, yeah, it's probably yeah. a local name, actually. Probably, it's probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, been the wrong name or something, yeah. Yeah, anyway, Howard Smith vessel called the Dandenong got in all sorts of trouble, lost its propeller off Jarvis Bay and um, ended up foundering and the, the Albert William rescued just a small number of survivors. The rest disappeared, never to be seen of again. Wait, so how many? Um, oh, roughly. Roughly, here we go. Not hundreds, not hundreds. No. Because really. they weren't that big, were they? Oh, no, the Dandenong probably would have only been, you know, 500, yeah, yeah, 500 yeah. odd tonnes, probably, you know... Um, Less than 100 metres in length, I would say. Um, I think it was like s- they maybe rescued 60, something yeah, like that. Yeah, wow. But um, so big, big effort. If yeah. you could imagine in, in huge seas, oh, yeah. in your, in your little um, lifeboat, you have to <laughs> roll over to the, this foundering vessel, pick up survivors, row back, and then you're getting further and further apart each time because they're, they're both, well, one's on the sail and the other one's sort of flopping around everywhere. Yeah. So um, that was her sort of main claim to fame. Um, and then uh, end up being sailing out to Western Australia in 1900 and uh, took the wrong turn coming down the Hamlin, off Hamlin Island in um, Hamlin Bay, ran ashore, uh, was salvaged and then turned into a lighter. So A what? A what? <laughs> Why was that do? A lighter. It was, um, it was just basically a storage vessel. It was yeah, right. Like a semi-trailer. Uh, yeah, okay, right. It's like a trailer a in the tra- backyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a yeah. like camp trailer in yeah, the backyard. You load yeah. up with stuff and take everywhere. So that Adelaide Steamship Company bought her yeah. um, just to, as a, to carry um, poppy coal and all other sorts of stuff. Cause you, just for coastal trading? No, it was just oh. within the port itself. Oh, okay. So if your steamer pulled up in the, you know, Fremantle or whatever, and yeah. need a load of coal, they just tow the um, yeah, right. the lighter or the coal hog down the, along beside it, and that would um, fill, they'd fill the bunkers, yep. and then it'd go to the next steamer. Yeah, wow. Well. So, all that, even that coal f- for that lighter would be coming, say, from Newcastle or somewhere like that, and they'd, a lot of little sailing, sh- sailing ships would sail it around because it was so cheap, a lot cheaper than steaming. So, so, how did it get back off Williamstown? Well, <laughs> it's like oh, we're in Fremantle. I mean, we're in Fremantle. So the Adelaide Steamship Company was obviously a, a fairly huge sort of organisation. Yeah, and that had um, had a base in Melbourne as well. So they went the way of Kodak, didn't they? Yeah, <laughs> they didn't. They didn't see those non-steamships coming. Yeah, they. they? <laughs> anyway, I'll invest in film. I'll yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, can yeah. hardly go wrong. <clears throat> Disruptive technology the, in the eighteen hundreds. <laughs> the beta or the beta max. Yeah, 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 all that good stuff. <laughs> So it ended up being towed around from Western Australia to Melbourne and sold to the um, Victorian Lighters Co. in 1933. So yeah, right. Even on Port Phillip, up, up until the mid-1950s, there were still lighters towing. Being, Seriously? Yeah, it was a really... Like if Because it was easier to move it, to handle it, to put it in a little kind of barge, basically, and then move it across. Well, the roads, even though there was... Yeah, yeah. So yeah, a road a road system. It wasn't like yeah. you have these days. Yeah, you could, could get to Geelong, but it was a you know a fairly yeah. It was a long way. Yeah, a, a little. So it was quicker to bung it on the the lighter and tow it down. It would. Uh, we could carry more. Like so, that yeah, yeah. the light could carry up to two thousand bales of wool. So in uh, nineteen, 19- yeah, it's a bunch of horse carts. <laughs> 
So in May, <laughs> May 1955, um, it was being towed down the bay right. to Geelong because it, it travelled backwards and forth with um, cargo for their big off big steamers, you know, overseas steamers, because the world will be loaded. Well, so they had, in 1955, they still had big overseas, you know, like steamships going overseas. Oh, yeah, yeah, to um, cargo, just cargo, pure cargo vessels. Goodness um, me. So um, they would uh, I would lo- take the wool or whatever, wool and wheat and all sorts of stuff. So there was still a, a significant uh, trade in lighters yeah. and coal hogs, and um, it was being towed down the bay, and, and uh, it was a fairly, fairly sort of serious set suddenly blowing and the uh rope tow rope got wrapped <laughs> so someone forgot to actually yeah i can't can, can just it's going to end in tears they, they the work experience kid on he <laughs> just he did the wrong knot <laughs> he did he did a granny knot instead of a half <laughs> inch <laughs> or slip knot and someone's going gee it's a bit lighter yeah well, gee, oh, we're, making, <laughs> we're making good speed <laughs> what's that thing <laughs> drifting Think of the distance. So the uh, actually rope, seriously, the rope broke. Rope, no, the rope failed the the uh, tug's propeller, and so they, <gasps> they had to cut it adrift. Oh no! While way. they saw, while the tug sorted itself out. So this, um, you're joking. So that that is a hell of a choice. But also on board, we can't go anywhere. So we have to cut it. But if we cut it, it's going to drift because there's a howling sound. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. And on board there was uh, there was two people living because oh. the lighters would have their own um, small. Crew like uh, right, and they'd actually live on board. They'd actually live because they were ex ex sailing or steamers yeah, or whatever. Yeah. They still had the accommodation. Of yeah. And there was um uh, a guy and his his wife, and they, he was an ex ex soldier, so he'd been through the through a pretty hard time. He and his wife lived on board this vessel, and that was yeah. their home. So that was everything they had. So this poor old poor old Albert Williams charging up the bay. You're going the wrong direction. In the wrong yeah. direction, heading towards Williamstown. And, and there's no, because it's been essentially decommissioned, there's no way that he can start up the engine and, you know, or, you know, turn it, you know, into the wind or whatever. No, he couldn't, he couldn't right. even drop He's the got, anchor. Yeah, right, okay. There's yeah. him and his wife, so. And the engine wasn't there. No, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, because it's been completely decommissioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, it went charging up the bay and grounded off Williamstown. Yeah, right. In about just off the footy oval, just off the footy oval, in a in a oh, about under two meters of water or so. Oh right! So you could literally you could almost walk out there. It's almost it's well, sandalins could. <laughs> low tide, you might be able yeah, to yeah. You can get close. So what what happened in a couple of years later? It was obviously a hazard because people were falling off and doing all sorts of things. Yeah, you put a put a, a vessel ashore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, people have to crawl, crawl oh, over. Oh, what no. else would you do? Yeah, yeah, of course. So people were disappearing. And, you know. So, so hang on, you could you could see it yeah, above. It was, yeah, it's so yeah, right. It was it was about five meters showing above. So the, I bet there's listeners out there going, oh, "I remember that." Oh, Jack from Williamstown. Yeah, yeah, yeah he'll be going. Oh, I remember that. Oh, I forget that. Yeah, I used to throw yonies yeah. out from the shore. <laughs> we used to jump off there. Yeah. It was, it was a hoot. Yeah. But actually a friend of mine, Bob, he, he, was, a, he was quite young at the time. He could remember going down there and uh, trying – there was a, a mahogany table there. He said, you know, I wanted to grab it, but <laughs> there's no way no one could get it, get it off. So it was literally still had the stuff. Did it have – was it full of coal or it was wool? A, or? They had wool. So yeah, right. They had to be but taken. they salvaged the wool. All the wool was yeah, salvaged right. and then um, – a couple of years later, they it was a tender let, and it, it was all cut up with um, dynamite. Well, not all of it. <laughs> cut up with dynamite. I love that. Well, a, I call that exploding. <laughs> a good diver with a, a stick of the right 
dynamite can cut like uh, an oxy torch. Yeah, but I, I still call it exploding. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it might be a bang involved yeah. at the end of it. <laughs> and a whole lot of things go... <laughs> a whole lot of uh, stunned fish floating around as well. Yeah. So, so that, what, they just bust it up a bit? Bust it up, lift the bottom half. Right, bottom, so it's literally just the base of the hull. Probably, uh, or oh, maybe uh, less than a metre. Yeah, right. But also within that, you've got... You've got this stretch of a, a ship, iron shipwreck. You've got a yeah. huge pile of anchor chain there, which, you know, a couple of tons of anchor chain. And, and you can see all this. You can I, see never, it. I did not know this was so close. Yeah, it's just I was down um, with um, my eldest, oh, gosh, it's not that, maybe four or five months ago, <laughs> just snorkelling off um, off the Marin Sanctuary there, which is just around the corner. Yeah, yeah. If I had known there was, it was that close, we would have gone up that way. Well, you could have jumped in on a couple of wrecks in the marine, in the drawbone itself. Oh, no, tell me about that. Well, there's a couple. Have we of got time? We got time. Tell me quickly. Because <laughs> <laughs> there used to be a break ship breaking ground there. Yeah, in, yeah, right in yes. the drill bone. Yeah. If you go in in there, you can actually see like old iron knees and bits and pieces. Ah, oh, no, I did see bits. Well, there, there you go. You're on top of a shipwreck there. There you go. It's really quite fascinating. Yeah, a couple of old lighters they used to run ashore, break them up for firewood and all sorts of stuff, and and just leave leave bits and as you do bits and pieces. I'd- on the bottom. That should do. So if so, there's a couple of really close ones there because you can snorkel there easily yeah, at the sanctuary. You can snorkel there off the footy ground pretty easily. Yeah, easy, yeah. You can even do it with a light subtly. It's if, not a if, hard if, Yeah, light subtly is less than 10 knots, say. Yeah. Um, Northly or, or westerly yeah. is ideal. What about, is there any? Is there another one close by that's not at, say, Half Moon Bay <laughs> um, that you, you can actually go to? Well, there's one... Um, Oh, there's a couple around Williamstown. There's uh, if you jump off any of the of the uh, the back beach at Williamstown, just snorkel mm. through there. You can see bits of pieces of wreckage next to Breakwater Pier. Um, right down the end near the caisson, there's yeah. a huge piece of wreckage. There's also part of an old um, degausing range that they dumped there. It's a really uh, quite significant. Remind me what degausing is again. Have you forgotten already? I have forgotten <laughs> what degausing is. Well, did, during World War Two. Ships were uh, attracted, or magnetic mines were attracted yes. to iron, iron steel ships, so they changed the polarity by running a current through them. Yeah, and they used to sit them there and then run yeah. a current through them, didn't they? Well, yeah. there was a degausing rain, range off Williamstown built in World War Two. Used to freak out the local sharks. They'd <laughs> <laughs> be like, whoa, this is EM radiation, what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> so a ship could re- proceed reasonably safely mm. uh, against magnetic mines, but not normal yeah, old-fashioned. yeah. 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 Old fashioned ones, they still explode. <laughs> old fashioned. So there you go. Wow. Well, thank you, Rex. I had no idea. So there you go. Listen, head Lots out of to, history there. Head out to Willie. Is there a is there like a local um, shipwreck map for well, Willie that anyone can? Well, we have know, talked about it with the friends of the Jawbone. We, we are going yeah. to do it. Proceed because I was at AMA conference last weekend in, in um, Australasian Institute for Maritime Archaeology. Yep. In Adelaide, and there was a in Western Australia in Coburn Sound. They've made this amazing wreck trail where they have an, virtually Fantastic. the same situation, but they've put in structure for fishermen and scuba divers, and it's just phenomenal. They've done, so and you can you can just literally snorkel from point to point. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah it's, it's a bit like the old octopus garden down at Rye, but this one for shipwrecks. Yes, that'd be brilliant. Incorporating shipwrecks and structures and sculptures. It's just it so would, that's something for the local council and the, yes, yes, and the managers of the park. There we go. I'll right. throw that one out there. Yeah. Oh, it's lots, lots. Hey, now, blue carbon, uh, Rex, blue carbon uh, is not actually the carbon they use to make blue steel, which is the, the <laughs> Zoolander carbon, movie. Or carbon paper. <laughs> or carbon paper. No, blue carbon is, and it's not actually blue. No. <laughs> so there you go. Well, you, can, 
could knock me over with a feather. It is carbon that is made by oceanic or coastal systems to differentiate it between terrestrial carbon. So that's it. That's all Simple. they call blue carbon. <laughs> anyway, um, we've talked about, we've had people on talking about blue carbon over the years, but um, one of the things that blue carbon has suffered from, if I could put it that way, is um, the fact that it's very hard to measure. And so, but, but there are people like Peter McCready and others and locally who are doing a lot of work in, in trying to get better data because the idea is that if, we, if one day we get a federal government that enables the trading of carbon, which, of course, we need to get our way out of some of this mess um, that we're in, then it's a tradable quantum. It's a tradable commodity. And once it becomes a tradable commodity, we know that the market will move it and there'll be signals and people will actually want to maintain carbon, so, you know, stores. It has a value. It has a value, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, and so if, you, if you're going to trade it, then you need to be able to measure it and it needs to be verifiable because people won't put their money into things they don't verify. So blue carbon is stuff that comes from, you know, tidal marshes, mangrove forests, seagrass meadows, and there's lots and lots of carbon, they call it sea organic carbon, that's stored in the soils of those particular ecosystems. And then it gets released. And it gets released in a couple of different ways. You know, it could be disturbed, could be degraded, could be scoured, um, you know, digging anchors, ripping it up, you know, obviously removing the ecosystem. So and turning townhouses. <laughs> spot on. Turning, you know, it into a port facility, turning it into a... Um, and this is um, for, for the next little bit I'm talking about turning into a prawn farm. You know, yeah. people dug it up, dug up mango forest, bung the prawn farm. You know, obviously what you do there is you release the stored carbon. So it's like effectively like cutting down a forest. Yes. Now, <clears throat> is this related to depth of water as well? It can be, yes. And also the oxygen level in the soil right. as well. So, um, and, and because of the way the chemistry works, you can end up with very acidy soil if you get the oxygen and the water in there when it's been locked up for a long time and you end up with acid sulfate soils. It all gets a bit messy if you dig it up. But if you leave it sitting there or if you plant and grow more stocks of the coastal marshes and seagrasses and mangroves, which isn't easy but is possible, then you grow more blue carbon. It's been done there at Williamstown down yeah. um, Stony Creek. You can, you're spot on. You, you're spot on, particularly coastal marshes. They're a bit easier to to rebuild effectively than seagrass beds. Yeah, well, it's been going for about 20 years now, I think. Yeah, and in Western Port, there's the, the mangroves as well. Anyway, anyway, one of the things that's been happening is there's always been a sense at blue carbon that, that these coastal systems were better at storing the carbon than forests. So, you know, your average land forest. Bank. Yeah. Now, it turns out they're roughly twice as good. And it just happens to be related to the soil chemistry and the and the way it all. I'm going to bore everyone with the details because, frankly, I don't understand all the chemistry of it. I'm st- struggling to stay awake as it is. <laughs> <laughs> but so it turns out because there's about twice as much um, terrestrial forest. Yep. Um, it, they're roughly equivalent. Sounds like good value for money. So the carbon in the in the blue carbon storage and the carbon in the green carbon storage, for want of a better term, are about similar, but there's half as much of the area yes. of blue carbon. So anyway, these guys have been doing some fantastic work. There's a whole bunch of people from all over the country in the latest um, frontiers in ecology and environment um, who've been doing some calculations and trying to work out a framework so that you can actually calculate the risk to losing it so that you can stick it in a market. Exactly. Anyway, simultaneous so, to this, there's a bunch of guys in the States 
a whole bunch again I won't go through all the, the, the names of them but from um, a whole bunch of Oregon State Uni and some Mexican universities and some Indonesian universities who've been calculating the blue carbon cost of a surf and turf dinner. <laughs> but before I get to that, let me describe what happened to um, an impounded coastal wetland. So a coastal wetland that someone decided to put a levee around in Queensland in Trinity Bay, East Trinity Bay, stick a levee around it, drain it and then use it to plant sugarcane. This is off cans. The, um, what happened was the acid, the acidity of the soil changed from neutral to halfway to com- the most acidic it could possibly be. Oh. Highly acidic water then drained into the associated estuary. The site lost 1.3 metres of soil elevation. Guess where that soil went? Down to the Barrier Reef. This yeah. is in 1976 when this happened. 110 hectares. This mangrove forest completely removed. Um, it didn't go so well for the for the sugarcane, <laughs> as you can imagine, with yes. a highly acidic soil. And it turns out that in the 23 years until 2000, and, um, sorry, the Queensland government bought this site to rehabilitate it. They reckon that this particular 110 hectare site, in terms of the component of the CO2 emissions of Queensland, is about a third of a percentage of the entire state's so, you know, it doesn't sound like much, but it's only 110 hectares no, and it was so badly buggered. Yeah, mismanaged. Yep, that that emission from that site was about a third of 1% of the entire state's emissions. Well, that's significant for only 100 and whatever it is. 110 hectares. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so here we go. Back to the surf and turf. Right. So these guys have kind of worked out and said, you know, like we have to work out what the amount of greenhouse, uh, the, essentially the carbon footprint, greenhouse gases generated by these ecosystems and, and it gets converted. So they went to a whole bunch of places all around the world, Indonesia, Honduras, Dominican Republic, Costa Rica, um, Mexico, and they looked at undisturbed mangroves and um, and coastal wetlands and then adjacent shrimp ponds and cattle pastures. So they used to be mangroves, yep. now they're cattle pastures. They calculated the flux of carbon between them both and they basically worked out that the carbon footprint um, for um, a kilo of beef was about um, 14... 14, 1,440 kilos of carbon CO2 for one kilo of beef. Produced. Produced, yeah. 1,603 kilos for every kilo of shrimp. And they worked out that if you have, a sh- you know, basically you sit down to a surf and turf, then you are, your, your dinner would burden the atmosphere with 816 kilos of equivalent carbon. Wow. Now, to put that into context, that is like driving a normal car from New York to LA. Wow. You produce the carbon emissions equivalent if the, if the surf and turf have come from coastal wetlands that have been turned into shrimp, ponds and pastures. Well, first of all, you need your, your, your head red to have surf and turf. <laughs> <laughs> That's least, remarkable, isn't it? Are, are there different... Different values for different soils? Absolutely, yeah. It's all, this, this was very much based on a kind of a global average about those five or six different countries, different farming techniques. But if it comes from pastures that used to be mangrove and coastal wetlands, basically you may as well drive your car from LA to New York and you'll make as much carbon. If you drive a hybrid, it will be less. Right. You could probably get a couple of meals out of it. But then you've got the batteries that were made. <laughs> yeah, true, if you look at the life cycle. Yeah. Anyway, there you go, Blue Carbon. Blue Thank Carbon. you very much, uh, Rex, for chatting this morning. Oh, any time. It's been... Uh, now, next week... Uh, gosh, I can't even remember. Well, There's a whole bunch we, of stuff. We I think John's in. John will be probably wearing his bloody 
you know, Richmond. <laughs> Kendall be in. Kendall be um, singing the theme song with the uh, doctors in about a minute and a half. See you next week. See ya. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.